Chief Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to One Month to Better Third-Party Management. This month's podcast series is sponsored by Opus. Opus helps free your business from the complexity and uncertainty of managing the risks associated with your customers, vendors, and third parties. By combining the most innovative third-party risk management and know your customer compliance SaaS platforms with unparalleled data solutions, Opus turns information into action so your business can thrive. Opus solutions include the Hyperos ABAC Accelerator, the leading platform for third-party risk management. To learn more, go to www.opus.com. Opus is an appropriate sponsor for this month as I'm focusing on third parties the third-party risk management process. Over the next couple of weeks, I'll be looking at the management of third parties after the contract is signed. We're going to take a look at auditing, (coughs) relationship management, training, continually monitoring and updating your own third-party program. This is an incredibly important month on my one-month series this year, and I'm sure that you will garner some new techniques that you can incorporate directly into your third-party risk management program. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening. Day 13, Internal Controls for Third Parties. Today I want to consider how internal controls can be used in your third-party risk management program. Initially, a compliance practitioner should perform an analysis of any third-party representative to provide insights into the patterns of dealings with such third parties and, therefore, the areas where additional control should be considered. Some of the basic internal controls should are a part of your financial control system. The following internal controls could be some or all of the following in compliance. Control to correlate the approval of payments made to contracts with third-party representatives and your company's internal systems for processing invoices. Two, a control to all situations in which funds can be sent outside the U.S. in whatever form your company might use, which could include account payable, computer checks, manual checks, wire transfers, replenishment of petty cash, loans, advances, or other forms. Number three, a control for the approval of sales discounts to distributors. Number four, a control for the approval of account receivable write-offs. Number five, a control for the granting of credit terms to third parties or customers outside the U.S. Number six, a control for agreements for repurchase of inventory sold to third parties or customers. Number seven, a control of bank accounts, specifically including accounts opened at the request of a customer or agent. Eight, a control for the movement or disposal of inventory. Inventory. Nine, a control for the movement and disposable of movable fixed assets. And ten, execution and modification of contracts and agreements outside the United States. That's a control for. There should also be an internal control based on activities with third-party representatives. These can include some or all of the following. A control for the structure and enforcement of the delegation of authority a control for the maintenance of the vendor master file, a control around expense reports received from third parties, a control for gift, entertainment, and business courtesy expenditures by third-party representatives, a control for charitable donations, a control for all cash and currency inventory, fixed asset transactions, and contract executions outside the U.S. where the country manager has final authority, 
and finally, any other activity or control for any other activity which there is defined corporate policy relating to the FCPA. While this list may be appear to be overly exhaustive, there are four significant controls that the compliance practitioner should implement initially. Those four are the delegation of authority, number two, maintenance of a vendor master file, number three, contracts with third parties, and number four, movements of cash or currency. A delegation of authority should reflect the impact of corruption risk, including both transactions and geographic locations, so that a higher level of approval for matters involving third parties and for fund transfers and invoice payments to countries outside the United States would, <coughs> required, would be required inside an organization. Often a delegation of authority is prepared without much thought being given to FCPA risks. However, once a delegation of authority is prepared, it is not used again until it's time to update for personnel changes. Moreover, it is often not available, not kept current, or not <coughs> kept, uh, not defined with authority in a way that approves the approvers could understand or stand it. Therefore, it's incumbent that a delegation of authority be incorporated into a company's accounts payable processing system in a manner that ensures all high-risk vendors receive uh, proper visibility. That is, their invoices receive proper visibility. To achieve this, you should identify those vendors within the vendor master file so payments are flagged for the appropriate authority before they're paid. Moreover, if a delegation of authority is prepared properly and enforced properly, it can be a powerful preventive tool for FCPA compliance. For instance, consider the wire transfer of X amount between company bank accounts in, which, in the U.S., which might require the approval by the finance manager at the initiating location and one officer. However, a wire transfer of X dollars to the company's bank account in Nigeria could re require approval by the finance manager, a knowledgeable person in the compliance function, and one other officer. In this situation, the delegation of authority should specify who must give the final approval for engaging third parties. Moreover, the delegation of authority should express, <coughs> should address rather, replenishment of petty cash in countries outside the U.S., as well as approval of expense reports for employees who work outside the U.S. Some believe that the vendor master file can be one of the most powerful preventative tools, largely because payments to fictitious vendors are one of the most common occupational frauds. The vendor master file should be structured so that each vendor can not only be identified by risk level, but also the date on which the vendor vetting was completed and the vendor received final approval. There should be electronic controls in place to block payments to any vendor for which vetting has not been approved. And vetting, of course, is due diligence. Next, manual controls are needed <coughs> over the submission, approval, and input of changes to the vendor master file. These, includes in, these controls include verification that all vendors have been approved before their information and vendor approval date that's inputted into the vendor master system. Finally, manual controls are needed when one-time vendors are requested or when a vendor name or vendor payment information or changes are submitted. Near and dear to my heart as a lawyer, contracts with third parties can be a very effective internal control which works to prevent nefarious conduct rather than simply as a detect control. I would caution that for contracts to be <clears throat> effective internal controls, relevant terms of those contracts should be extracted and available to those who process and approve vendor invoices. If there are non-conforming service descriptions, 
Commission rates present in such contracts, they must be approved not only by the original approver, but also the person delegated in the delegation of authority. Unfortunately, contracts are not typically integrated into an internal control system. <laughs> they are left off literally to the side on their own, usually gathering dust in the legal department file room. A recent FCPA enforcement action was an excellent example of the lack of internal control over disbursement of funds and movement of currency because you had the country manager literally delivering bags of cash to a foreign government official to obtain or retain business. All situations where funds can be sent outside the United States should be reviewed from the compliance risk standpoint. Further, your company should have a structure, rather, within a company structure, you need to have a, identify ways in which the country manager or sales manager could cause funds to be transferred to their control and concealing the true nature of the funds. All wire transfers, transfers outside the United States should have the defined approvals and the delegation of authority, and the persons who execute wire transfers should be required to evidence agreement of approvals to those delegations of authorities. Wire transfer requests going out of the U.S. should always require dual approvals. Finally, wire transfer requests going outside the U.S. should be required to include a description, description of the proper business purpose. Never forget that internal controls are really just good financial controls. The internal controls detailed for third-party representatives in the compliance context will help to detect fraud, which could help lead to prevention of bribery and corruption. So what are today's three key takeaways? Well, the first one is internal controls are a key component of any operationalized compliance program. This is because it pushes down approval in numerous touch points where bribes uh, could be funded or could be paid out to those in the company, uh, most on the front lines, with the ability to exercise and understand control. Second, in reality, internal compliance controls are just good financial controls. Um, if you do not have robust financial controls, you probably do not have a very well-run company. This means that by having robust internal compliance controls, you will have a much more efficient and, at the end of the day, probably more profitable company. Finally, the four top internal controls for compliance are, one, delegation of authority, two, maintenance of the vendor master file, three, contract with third parties, and D, controls around movement of cash or currency. I hope you have enjoyed Day 13, Internal Controls for Third Parties, and I hope you will join me tomorrow for Day 14 of One Month to Better Third Party Management. This is Tom Fox. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of One Month to Better Third Party Management. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate this podcast as it will help our rankings and help us get the word out on this most unique podcast series in compliance. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to today, and I hope you will listen tomorrow on another episode of One Month to a Better Third-Party Manager.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.